You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome everyone to our annual employment law update. During today's episode, I'll be highlighting some of the new legislative changes that went into effect January 1st, 2022. Stay with us and learn about new laws impacting wage and hour practices, Cal OSHA compliance, and updates concerning severance or separation of employment agreements. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. A quick note before we get started. The legislative updates that we're going to be talking about today impact private as opposed to public employers and employees. So with that little disclaimer, let's get started. So the first thing I want to remind everyone is, of course, the minimum wage uh, increases for January 2022. So effective January 1st, 2022, the minimum wage in California did increase to $15 an hour for large employers. And a large employer is someone uh, with 26 or more employees. And it went up to $14 an hour for small employers, which are deemed to be those that have fewer than 25 employees. Keep in mind also that the amount for small employers, those with fewer than 25 employees, are going to increase again on January 1st of 2023 to $15 an hour. That's the leveling up that's been going on for quite a while. State law, of course, requires California workers be paid the minimum wage. In addition, it's important to note that some cities and counties have a local minimum wage that can be higher than the state rate. So if you're an employer, you should keep this in mind. When faced with conflicting employment law standards, an employer must follow the standard that is most beneficial to the employee, which may mean in a local jurisdiction paying higher than the state minimum wage rate. So there is a great resource at the UC Berkeley Labor Center's list. So go to UC Labor Center, uh, uh, ucberkeleylaborcenter.com. Uh, there's a detailed list of local minimum wage ordinances, ordinances which will give you some guidance. All right, so let's talk about our first legislative update. Our first legislative update is SB 639. And I'm super excited about this one. So with SB with SB 639, it ends California's decade-old practices of offering exemptions that allow those with mental and or physical disabilities to be paid at subminimum wages. It all started in 1938. President Roosevelt signed into law, of course, the Fair Labor Standards Act. And at that time, they were worried that those with mental and or physical disabilities were going to be disadvantaged 
by the FLSA. Uh, There was an additional section added, which allowed employers to pay workers with disabilities um, lower wages. Um, And then California followed suit and initiated the same uh, sort of exemption into its labor code. So this uh, new law, SB 639, it's the culmination of several subsequent presidential, gubernatorial, legislative acts across the years that have really pushed forward the rights of development, developmentally disabled workers. And it allows them, of course, to receive the same rights and responsibilities that all other workers in the United States and California are guaranteed by the Constitution, regardless of their disabilities. So after January 1st, 2022, this bill is going to prohibit the issuance of any special licenses that author employ, authorize employment of uh, mentally and or physically disabled workers at less than the prevailing minimum wage. So I'm very excited, very, very happy about that. Very excited. Our next one is AB1003. AB1003 makes it a violation of specified wage and gratuity provisions, a misdemeanor. California law does. Well, so California law actually does already makes a violation of certain wage and gratuity provisions. So tips and all that, a misdemeanor. And it does already provide for civil penalties um, and remedies for recovering of wages, as we know. But AB1003 takes it to a whole new level. So it elevates existing liability by making the intentional theft of wages or tips by employers punishable as grand theft. Yes. The intentional theft of wages or tips by employers punishable as grand theft. So. An employer's intentional theft of wages or gratuities in an amount greater than $950 for one employee or $2,350 for two or more employees. And in any 12 consecutive month periods, a one month period is now going to be punishable as grand theft. So this increases the penalty for grand theft and created a new penal code. Offers now sort of prosecutors now have the options of criminal prosecution because it is a it would be considered a criminal prosecution. They now have the discretion to decide whether to charge an employer with a misdemeanor, which is imprisonment in county jail for up to a year, or to charge them with a felony, which is imprisonment in county jail for 16 months or two to three years. Um, or they could charge them with a specified fine or by fine and imprisonment, a combination of the two. It does a few other things. It defines what the theft of wages is, and they determine that to be the intentional deprivation of wages or gratuities, benefits or other compensation by unlawful means. Uh, Knowing that the wages, gratuities, benefits, or that compensation is due to the employee uh, in accordance with wage and hour laws. It also makes clear uh, that the term employee includes independent contractor. So Oh, you always want to know whether independent contractors are covered by the law because it'll tell you so in the statute. And in this particular statute, it makes very clear employees does include someone who's hired as an independent contractor and that employer includes in its definition, someone who hires uh, an independent contractor or so the entity hiring entity of an independent contractor. Um, Authorizes wages, gratuities, benefits, other compensation to be subject to the laws recoverable. And it allows the employee or the labor commissioner uh, to commence a civil action to seek redress uh, under the labor code. So um, 
all employers sort of a best practice kind of thing. Uh, all employers, regardless of the size, uh, it's such a good idea to be mindful of the impact of this new law. And these are really severe penalties. So um, it's not really clear yet, of course, because it's a new law and we haven't seen any litigation around it. Um, so we're not exactly sure yet how the new criminal penalty is going to be interpreted or it's going to be enforced. But employers really should take this opportunity to sort of audit your current practices um, and make sure that you are in compliance with wage and hour laws. Also, increased training on internal policies and California law is also going to reinforce the seriousness of being tight in your uh, compliance. So though super important, I think it's important for employers to train both on a management supervisor level and to train their employees. Talk to your employees about what wage and hours laws require of them. What's their responsibility? Okay, make sure that they're not only complying with their uh, responsibilities under the law, but also in keeping with a company's policies. Um, wage and hour is one of the biggest liabilities that a company has these days. So it's super important that everybody's sort of up on what's going on and that you're monitoring these things. I'm a huge proponent of monitoring and auditing your wage and hour practices on either uh, you know, monthly basis, I know it sounds a lot, monthly basis, quarterly basis, whatever it is that you're actually going in and checking um, because you're going to you're gonna help manage that risk much, much better. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. I'm going to talk about more legislative updates that apply more or less to a general workplace uh, in a general workplace context. So stay with us. We'll be right back. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. Or if that resume was from someone who worked 12 hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone Growing up where I did, a lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals. But I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day. So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to grads of life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us, and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking about legislative updates that went into effect January 1st, 2022. So let's get back into it. The first uh, one that we're going to talk to that uh, is out of the wage and hour realm and back to a more general workplace context is SB 606. So SB 606 creates what they uh, what Cal OSHA is determining to be an enterprise-wide rebuttable presumption for employers that have multiple work sites and who violate OSHA standards, Cal OSHA standards, orders, or regulations. So this rebuttable presumption. Um, is going to apply if the employer has a written policy or a procedure that, of course, violates Cal OSHA provisions 
Or if there is a record of that employer that evidences a pattern or practice of the same violation being committed by the employer involving more than one of its work sites. So if the employer can't rebut the presumption that it has a written policy or procedure that violates Kalisha provisions or that it has a record of evidencing a pattern and practice of violations, this statute, SB 606, authorizes Cal OSHA to then issue what's called an enterprise-wide citation for what they deem to be, in those circumstances, egregious violations for each willful violations. And that's, of course, determined by Cal OSHA. And then to count each employee impacted by the violation as a separate violation for the purposes of issuing fines and penalties. That's huge. So think about that. So in other words, the maximum penalty would be assessed per violation per employee. That's huge. A violation under Cal OSHA standards um, is going to be deemed to be egregious if a lot of things fall into place. For example, um, an employer intentionally through voluntary action or inaction uh, made no reasonable effort to eliminate what was a known violation um, or violations resulted in worker fatalities, of course, worksite catastrophe, or where there was a large number, a significant number of injuries or illnesses in the workplace. If a violation resulted in high rates of worker injuries, of course, the employee uh, or the employer, if they have an extensive history of prior violations, that's going to be an indicator. Um, If the employer has intentionally disregarded health and safety responsibilities, and there's a history of that, So the employer's conduct taken as a whole, they're going to look at it that way to see what amounts to clear bad faith in the performance of their duties uh, to provide a safe working environment for their employees under Cal OSHA regulations. And also if the employer has committed enough violations to sort of undermine the effectiveness of any safety and health program uh, that it might already have in place. The statute amendments of SB 606, they, they also, also authorize Cal OSHA to investigate the employer's policies and practices or those of any related employer entity. And then, of course, to issue and enforce a subpoena for failure to provide information that's requested in connection with that investigation. Also gives them the ability to seek an injunction or possibly a temporary restraining order um, to stop whatever practices they feel are violating Cal OSHA regulations. So with regard to this, I think some of the best things to do to kind of avoid, you know, avoid liability. Um, so when it comes to Cal OSHA compliance, keep in mind, know the safety and health standards that actually apply to your industry or your operations. Make sure that employees are aware of their rights and responsibilities. Educate employees, okay? Um, they're going to be a really useful tool um, if they see something to say something, uh, especially where an op- uh, employer has really big operations. Um, managerial duties can get diluted down the reporting chain. So I think it's important to empower employees so that they know that they can come forward without fear of retaliation uh, and let you know uh, if they see something and, and help them be a part of creating a safer, healthier work environment. In doing your own inspections, reporting as you're supposed to, recording uh, injuries as you're supposed to, uh, making sure that employers are using and maintaining all of the equipment 
you're warning people about potential hazards that might be around and that you've got uh, and that you have established, implemented, and of course, you're maintaining your injury and illness prevention program, your IIPP. That's super important. Thing before we leave, OSHA, I, I do think it's really important that employers also sort of understand that there's no penalty for exercising certain rights, which can assist in reducing potential liability and, of course, future risk. And that's doing things like asking for and receiving proper identification from an inspector prior to workplace investigation. So when Cal OSHA comes, you do have the right to ask for proper identification accompanying the inspector during the inspection, um, having an opening and closing conference uh, with the inspector. Those are some things that uh, it's a good thing for employers to keep in mind that they that they have rights uh, when it comes to investigations. All right, moving on, SB 657. This has to do sort of with electronic documents and the distribution of employment information. So of course, we all know state and federal law does require employers to meet certain workplace posting obligations. Um, what uh, has to be posted in your workplace, of course, is going to depend on a lot of things, depending on how many employees you have, what's the nature of your business, where are you located, uh, whether you're a federal contractor, and um, of course, the industry, right? Posting requirements uh, vary by statute, which means not all employers are going to be subject to each and every posting requirement. But employers who are subject to posting requirements have to, of course, conspicuously place the required notices in areas of the workplace that are frequented by employees throughout the workday. Now, <laughs> that's great, but there's been, as we all know, a significant decrease in the number of workers that are actually going into the workplace these days. Remote work has just skyrocketed. So a lot of employers have started questioning how do I comply with these posting mandates? Um, and of course, employees are impacted because they're not sure where to go to find this information that's usually posted in frequented places. The law does allow now. So in place of not just requiring employers to post physically, but it now says that in any instance uh, where an employer is required to physically post information, they can now also distribute that information to employees by email with the document or the documents attached. So it's important uh, to note that uh, while this does allow electronic distribution, which is great, very easy to do, it doesn't eliminate, of course, the worker's obligation to physically display the required postings in their work site. So I think that what it doesn't address that I think is a little unclear is that what about if you have a company intranet system? I think you need to comply, of course, you always need to comply with the statutory provisions. So making sure that email, uh, you're sending that email out with the required postings, uh, the top of the year is the best time to do that. But then if you have uh, an intranet system, I think it's a good idea um, to take that extra step of um, making sure that employees know that um in the, and yet a good place to do it is in the email. So it's a good thing that employees know that um, that not only here's here's a copy of the postings that you would normally see, but you can also view it on our worksite intranet system and tell them where it is they can do that or put a link in the email to where it lives on the intranet system um, so they can access it. 
So you kind of cover both things there and you make sure the employees are being covered and everybody knows where to look for the information. And you can show very clearly that as an employer, you have complied. Our next one is SB 807. SB 807, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. So this is a uh, sort of enacts a lot of important changes um, for tolling and jurisdictional mandates of the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, um, as well as employment record retention periods associated with complaints that allege workplace workplace violations of uh, California's Fair Employment and Housing Act, the FEHA. So what this does is the bill makes a lot of procedural changes to the way that the DFEH enforces civil rights actions under the FEHA, the Fair Employment Housing Act. And that includes modifying when and how the DFEH can appeal an adverse lower court decision. Um, and again, and, and tolling the amount of time that the DFEH has to file a civil action. Uh, while dispute resolution efforts are pending, uh, because they now have a program for a pilot program for dispute resolution. And because they implemented that program, they needed to amend the statute to sort of take into consideration um, how much time they have to file a civil action while, that, while uh, any mediation efforts or uh, resolution efforts are going on. One of the most important things that SB 807 does is it extends current record, record retention requirements for employers to four years. Um, so uh, now employers are going to be required to retain personnel records for applicants and employees for four years from the date the records were created or the date uh, any employment action was taken. And when they talk about employment action, they mean termination. So this is also in addition to any record requirements that apply, of course, once a complaint has been filed. So those are a little bit different. So all we're going to say about that, I think the biggest takeaway from that is to make sure that you are immediately doing sort of a review and audit of whatever your company's current record retention practices are to make sure you're including this expanded four-year requirement. All right, next up is SB331, which has to do with settlement and non-disparagement agreements. So over the last few legislative sessions, um, there's been a lot of changes um, to prevent employers from preventing the disclosure of factual information related to actions in the workplace that could be associated with sexual harassment or uh, harassment discrimination based on sex. So SB331 clarifies existing prohibitions and sort of expands on them to include acts of workplace harassment or discrimination that are not based on sex, meaning the prohibitions are expanded to include any acts of workplace harassment or discrimination based on any protected classification. It also expands outside of the non-disparagement agreement realm and applies to any any other type of document if that document would have, according to the statute, the purpose or effect of denying an employee their right to disclose information about the conduct they experienced that they allege is either harassing and discriminatory based on any protected classification. What that means is that basically is going to extend to any agreement relating to an employee separation from employment, whether it's a separation agreement or a severance agreement, whatever you want to term it. It also requires anyone utilizing these types of agreements include some specific language in the agreement that notifies the employee that the agreement doesn't prevent them from discussing or disclosing information about the unlawful acts in the workplace, such as harassment or discrimination or any other conduct that they have reason to believe 
is unlawful. So there's actual quoted statutory language that has to be included within the agreement. That's one important, important change. Another important change is that they have also codified the employer's responsibility when they're offering a separation agreement to notify employees that they have a right to seek legal counsel regarding the agreement and that they have to actually provide five business days to do so. So keep in mind that the statute does not prohibit uh, including a general release or a waiver of claims in an employee separation agreement. And it doesn't stop an employer from uh, requiring confidentiality with regard to the amount paid in a severance agreement. So I think the biggest thing with this, if you are using non-disparagement uh, non agreements or uh, you utilize separation or severance agreements, or you're thinking about it, seek legal counsel before you either initial, uh, initiate using those types of documents or if you're using them now because a lot has changed. Um, and I think it's important that those uh, agreements have been reviewed and are completely up to date. All right, that concludes our legislative update. In our last few minutes, I want to share with you a couple of big cases with some far-reaching implications. The first case signals a significant change may be on the horizon for California's Private Attorney General's Act of 2004, or PAGA, as it is more well-known. In December of 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court granted review of a case titled Viking River Cruises v. Moriana. So Viking River is a 2020 California Court of Appeal decision um, that reaffirmed California's longstanding rule uh, that an arbitration agreement cannot include an enforceable waiver of an employee's right to bring a PAGA action. So this case is interesting because a reversal or any alteration of our California's longstanding doctrine could offer broadened avenues for employers um, seeking to try to keep all employee disputes, including PAGA litigation, uh, within the arbitration forum. So the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly declined to review. I think it's really important to note California's longstanding decision on this issue, um, which is, of course, always allowed California's PAGA litigation to remain within our civil court systems. But this decision could signal a change at the highest levels. We're talking U.S. Supreme Court. So no schedule right now has been announced for oral arguments in this case, but it is likely that it's going to be heard by this U.S. Supreme Court within its 2022 term. Another important case that I want to mention is uh, called Donahoe VAMN Services, LLC. In Donahoe, the California Supreme Court specifically condemned the practice of rounding to the nearest time increment for meal and rest periods. This case draws a super clear line for employers, which doesn't happen too often. <laughs> but basically, the clear line is no rounding of time punches for meal and rest periods. Employers that are currently utilizing rounding practices need to really just immediately change this practice right now because it could cause you significant liability for a failure to pay um, meal premiums in accordance with California law. All right. Our next case that I want to talk to you about is the California Supreme Court case of Fiera v. Lowe's Hollywood Hotel, which answered a much debated question in California about what is the statutory meaning of two particular wage and hour terms? One is the regular rate of compensation. The other is the regular rate of pay. The other question it answered was whether or not California legislature intended that the regular rate of compensation 
should have the same meaning as regular rate of pay. They're in two separate code sections in California law. So this would mean, do they mean the same things that, so that the calculation of premium pay for non-compliant meal uh, rest periods or recovery periods, like the calculation of overtime pay, uh, does it have to account not only for hourly wages, but also other discretionary payments for work performed by the employee? So that's bonuses or commissions. So in a unanimous decision, um, our California Supreme Court held that the wage and hour terms are, quote, synonymous and encompass all non-discretionary payment, not just hourly wages, unquote. So what does that all mean? Well, the court's decision that the terms are synonymous means that meal, rest, or recovery period premiums, which is that one additional hour of pay, uh, it has to be paid using the current calculation for determining overtime using the regular rate of pay, which factors in all non-discretionary payments, bonuses, commission, piece rate earnings. The biggest thing about this uh, ruling is that it applies retroactively. So because it re requires retroactive application, I want to make sure that everyone understands how important this is. So to comply, I think one of the best practices is to immediately uh, audit existing payroll records going back for the entire statute of limitations, which is three years to determine whether meal and rest breaks or recovery premiums were paid at the employee's regular rate of pay, meaning it included factoring in all non-discretionary uh, non-discretionary payments. So then if the if your audit shows that there were meal and rest breaks or recovery premiums that have been paid based on the employee's base hourly rate, then to correct that, uh, it's a good practice to sort of immediately update existing payroll systems or contact your current payroll provider to make sure you adjust to the current rate of pay, which is the employee's regular rate of pay, and initiate sort of, I've said this earlier in the show as well, a payroll audit process, big on the payroll audit processes. Um, this is just going to ensure that everyone's complying employers and employees with the wage and hour laws that they're applied, which includes meal rest or recovery requirements. And it's especially important, I think, for those employers who are being um, using piece rate or commission or employees who are earning various rates within the work week or if they're eligible for non-discretionary bonus or incentives. I think with the huge impact of this, I think this is another one where I also recommend very strongly to seek out legal counsel um, when you're applying anything retroactively. You want to make sure you are looking at the right statutory time periods. You want to make sure you're including everything you're supposed to. You've done your calculations right. And then you want to talk to um, uh, about that retroactive application and how to do that with the least amount of risk possible. All right. Well, that is our show for today. I want to thank you all for joining me. I want to thank our radio angels, James and the Navit Knight, Workplace Perspectives team extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.